looking back on 40 years of alternative music. It's the Roots of Alternative podcast with Jack and Dixon for 95X. And hello and welcome back to the Roots of Alternative podcast. This is our look back on the past 40 years of alternative music. And if you're a lover of alternative music, you are in the right place. It doesn't matter what uh, era you're from or what era you love. We're talking about it all right here on the Roots of Alternative podcast. My name is Jack, joined by Dixon, and we are your guides through this musical journey. Hello, my friend. Nice to talk to you once again. You too, fella. How's everything? Everything is fantastic. We've been doing the 90s. Uh, We are now officially halfway through the 90s. And uh, we're looking at 1996 today. Super excited for it. I I was six years old. (laughs) I was 23. Um, Man. Uh, You know, it's just, it's so weird thinking back um, and realizing how fast time has gone by. Of course, I feel like I say this every week now, but like when we actually take the time to, to look at each year in such detail, not only the music, but like what happened in the world, it's crazy. It just, it just blows my mind. Well, it's the difference between you having been six and me having been 23 there because I was a young adult in my third year of the music industry. You know what I mean? So my perspective of 1996 is very much from a young adult perspective where yours is going to be from. I was a you're, kid. You're a kid of the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I was, you know, still getting off the school bus, uh, watching my, uh, my Nick in the afternoon, stick stickly, uh, and, uh, you know, Hey Arnold and, uh, SpongeBob wasn't even on yet. SpongeBob came out like 1999. So yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Six, six years old. It was a long time ago. Yeah. You were getting off the school bus and I was parking tour buses, man. Tour buses. All right. What tours? Uh, I wasn't uh, at this point. It was a little bit. Oh, no, this was right around the time I went out with Earth Crisis a couple of times. But yeah, I hadn't done any major touring at this point, but I was running venues, hence parking the tour buses that were coming through town. How were there? I mean, was that in Syracuse at the time that you were running different venues or? Yeah. In 1996, uh, I was the general manager of a club in Armory Square, which was the first live music club in Armory Square called Stylene's Rhythm Palace. Um, I was also doing some oddball stuff here and there in uh, the Starlight Ballroom, which is now King of Clubs, also in Armory Square. Oh, uh, yeah. I did some occasional things at the Lost Horizon and Hungry Charlie's, but for the most part, Stylene's was the home base. Well, you know, it's just, it's crazy to hear you say of working at clubs, because I mean, first of all, I, I feel like clubs aren't really much of a thing anymore at least in Syracuse I know they are in bigger cities going to live in San Diego they were huge but right now clubs are definitely not a thing because no one's going out and partying and clubbing with everything happening in the world uh at least not in upstate New York uh and it's just um venues as a whole are just on hold right now which is sad because you know live music is a fantastic therapy but by the same token you know, I'd rather suffer a little uh, PTSD from not being able to see my favorite band than I would suffer the coronavirus and potentially totally. die. I can't wait for things to get back to normal. I mean, I, I think that's just <clears> without <throat> saying. I have tickets to a show at Red Rocks. I'm supposed to see the Goo Goo Dolls uh, in uh, Denver at Red Rocks in July. I don't know if that's happening. Uh, <laughs> I would really like to you know, know who's supposed soon. to open that show. Uh, actually, yes, I forgot who it was, though. Tell me. It's Blue October. That's right. Yeah, they've been to Syracuse a bunch of times. We've had them on 95X, too. Justin is a, is a personal friend, yeah. Yeah, no, he's a great guy. Um, what, I, I, what I loved about him was just how he interacted with, uh, with the fans and, and uh, our listeners here at the station. We had him for a um, – which, by the way, if you want to check this out, up at 95X.com under On Demand – uh, there's a video of when he visited our sound lounge, I think like three years ago or so. Um, it was before we had the stage even. So he, it was just this cool little space down in, in the basement at 95X. We had some listeners there, obviously, again, pre-COVID. Uh, we had like 50 people cramped in this tiny, small room, people sitting on the floor, people sitting on 
the couch that we had there and uh, standing up against the wall. And Justin just came down there himself and a guitar and he just played his heart out. And it was so, so good. And he was so great to everybody. I got two selfies with him. He was awesome. Great dude. One of my, one of my closest friends in the industry and a, a true success story. Um, you know, speaking of blue October, I, I would say go and check their new documentary, get back up out. Um, great stuff. If you're, um, you know, self-aware of mental health or are recovering addict yourself. It's a great watch. It's very inspiring. Um, and truthfully from the, the standpoint of it just being a film, it's well done. It's very well done. I like how it's shot and uh, it definitely has a very distinct story arc to it as well. So it's, it's also entertaining as well as enlightening. Mm. And, you know, I'll be honest too, because again, a lot of the theme of this podcast is me learning about a lot of bands. I didn't really know who Blue October was until they came to our, our show that we had like four years ago. Um, and I, you know, I like their music. I, I know that they're, um, I don't want to say they're, I, they were they were very popular back in the 90s, right? I mean, they're still popular today, but that's kind of when they were they, uh, their biggest, I guess. They formed in the late 90s. They broke through, I believe it was 2001 with the song Hate Me. Uh, in 2001, the music industry was sort of in this weird period where a lot of things like Blue October got lumped in with things like Papa Roach and Godsmack, oh, okay. and undeservedly so. And, and although some of the early Blue October stuff is a little bit on the butt-rocky side, there's always been a bit of, it, of an alternative influence. And what's been great for me um, was seeing the evolution of the artistry and point of view of Blue October from those early albums to the present day. Um, it, it, was, it was almost like having a friend that you got to watch grow in front of you. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it was, it, it's really cool to spend some time um, with the blue October catalog because it really is a, a great lesson in um, being patient with the artists that you love. And, and, and you know, there's a, I'm in a bunch of their, their Facebook groups and social media groups. And a lot of people don't give artists um, the, the freedom to, to truly be artists. They just want more of the same over and over again. And the point I make to these people is, well, Hey, if you liked the early work, then just continue to listen to the early work. Nothing says that you have to buy the new record and play it on repeat. If you don't care for it, you don't care for it. Like you have those albums. They're not going anywhere. You either have physical copies or a digital copy. Why are you lamenting the new stuff and comparing it to something that happened 20 years ago? You can't tell me that you're the same person you were 20 years ago. And if you are, well, then frankly, that's another discussion. But uh, Blue October, I think, demonstrates the most growth out of the traditional rock formula and into what is modern and contemporary today. I don't know that there are very many bands that I could point to that have not only had that success for that long, but have also reinvented themselves so many times in a natural manner along the way. And we'll get to Blue October as we get closer to the year 2000. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely excited to talk about it. Justin, such a great guy. Can't wait to talk about him more. So anyway, um, I mean, yeah, speaking of the 90s, uh, let's get into it. 1996, again, is our year. And a reminder, as always, if you want to catch up on our past episodes, if you are somewhat new to the podcast um, or just need a fresh reminder, our weekly playlist as well as some bonus material are uh, up on our page at 95x.com slash roots of alternative. And you can also send us a feedback with a voice message too. You can see that right on our link up at 95x.com as well. Without further ado, uh, Dixon, what happened in the year 1996? Let's take a look at some history. First and foremost, and this might blow your mind, uh, DVDs were launched for the first time, but only in Japan in 1996. Why are all the, it's, okay, CDs started in Japan and DVDs yeah. started in Japan? The technology started there. So, of course, the I think the, the final product should also, you know, originate from where it was created. I mean, understandably so. Yeah, that makes um, sense. In 12 months from 
the beginning of 1995 until the beginning of 1996, the number of internet host computers went from 1 million to 10 million. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine what it is today. Windows NT 4.0 was released by Microsoft. Internet Explorer 3 was the, the big fancy new web browser. Uh, the first version of the Java programming language was released. Uh, Ask Jeeves, which was a predecessor oh. to Google and Bing, was also formed uh, to be released in 1997. The logo uh, for that search engine always creeped me out. A little bit. It's creepy. Because he was like a, a, it was like a butler, like a really tall stick figure butler. It was creepy. Uh, let's see, 1996, uh, IBM's Deep Blue Computer, uh, its first version of AI, very basic version of AI, defeated chess champion Garry Kasparov hmm. in 1996. Uh, MSNBC uh, went on the air, a joint venture between Microsoft and NBC. Uh, American Pathfinder was launched in its 310 million mile mission to Mars, which later, mm. of course, gave us the rover. Um, big movies in 1996 include the classics, Independence Day, uh, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, The Rock, The Birdcage, one of the most underrated films of all time, and one that I know is near and dear to your heart, Star Trek First Contact. Star Trek First Contact was the very best Star Trek film in the entire franchise, at least in my opinion. Just looking back on all the films, even the new ones, there was something about that one. It was like, it was the second next generation film. It was the, uh, well, let's see, the eighth, I believe, uh, Star Trek film overall. And it was just the writing, the visual effects, uh, the cast, the acting, everything was perfect in that film. It's a 10 out of 10 for me, Star Trek First Contact. <laughs> and here's the most monumental part of my 1996 the N64 was released. Yes, the Nintendo Whoa. 64 was released in 1996. Blew my mind with the new version of Mario Kart. Uh, it was it was an obsession of mine that summer. We uh, would do certain things, and then we would just play <laughs> Mario Kart endlessly on every day off from the time we got up to the time we went to bed. Dude, all right. So two other games in addition to Mario 64. Because, I mean, Mario 64 was a classic. I remember vividly playing that. My, my cousin and my friend both had an N64. I didn't get one until several years later. Which, by the way, now if you're listening on the podcast, uh, you obviously can't see this because Dixon and I are, are Zooming each other uh, to record this thing. But mm. right over my shoulder, you can see my N64 sitting on my bookshelf under my TV here in my uh, my workroom, my office here at home. <laughs> I dug it out of the box just a couple of weeks ago and I had the very fun uh, time of playing GoldenEye on that thing. It still works after all these years. Classic. He's got game. a blow in him. I, I literally had to do that. I brought back so many members. Um, I do have to say too, uh, not to be political or anything like that, uh, but that was the year of the 1996 presidential election between uh, uh, Bob Dole and Bill Clinton. And aside from the candidates at the Democratic National Convention, there was a very memorable moment that was recently resurfaced a couple of years ago of uh, the Macarena playing and everyone in the convention hall dancing to the Macarena, which was also a hit song in the year 1996. And I just get a chuckle out of that. It doesn't matter who's doing it. It is just the most awkward video you will watch. And if you would like to feel the awkwardness with us, you can watch that right up on our show page at 95x.com. So 1996, a big year, historically speaking, and musically speaking, it was an even bigger year. So many amazing artists, so many recognizable and iconic songs. And we're going to get into that right now with the biggest songs in alternative music from the year 1996. All right. So 1996, again, a big year, a lot of different artists. All right, Dixon, I got to ask, who was your favorite? Well, I didn't necessarily have a favorite band, but there was one album that, that stands out and to me stands the test of time from 1996. And it's a little something called Fashion Nugget. By the band cake uh it spawned the the huge single the distance which you still hear 
uh, to this day on most alternative radio stations. It's been covered multiple times and used in huge national ad campaigns within the last two years. Uh, it also featured a very strange but somewhat charming cover of I Will Survive, the classic disco song, uh, and really pushed Cake into um, mainstream, I guess, with, is the best way to put it. I mean, over the course of 1996, their music was used in an episode of Daria, uh, the MTV mm. animated show. Their song Frank Sinatra was also featured at the close of the Sopranos episode called The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. Um, they were in a French film called Those Who Love Me Can Take the Train, which won multiple awards. Uh, it was featured in the 2003 movie Secretary, which if you're into weird kink stuff, <laughs> you probably want to go back and check out. Uh, and then it, in, since then, it's appeared in everything from The Simpsons to German television commercials. Uh, PBS to this day still uses the distance in a commercial for the series Maya and Miguel. And, uh, you know, it, it's still a staple at radio. They're still a phenomenal touring band. They're, uh, and, and I'll say this, man, I've seen probably 10,000 shows in my life. One of my top three favorite shows was seeing Cake live from the front row, like the actual front front row in the orchestra pit at the Landmark Theater mm. on the tour for this record. Wow. Like, when you really sit down and listen to that record, you realize how musical it is and how diverse it is and how many little nuanced and subtleties there are. And then when you see them live and you see their singer do all of these things with these hand instruments and mic placement, like it was just absolutely mind blowing how tight they were, how much fun they were. And, and honestly, like it's one of those memories that it, that'll stay with me forever. So that's why this mm. record stands out for me from 1996. I I discovered Cake about 10 years ago when I actually it was my first job in radio. I had never heard their music before. Um, and I don't know if it was a new song or if it was uh, like one of their classic songs, but I, I remember being intrigued by what I heard. Um, and they are definitely a band I would like to see in concert someday. I, I think it would be a lot of fun. They're great, man. And there's a little bit of something in there for everybody, whether it's just the, the straight ahead alternative sound they do some straight ahead rock stuff. There's funk, there's little elements of hip hop and jazz and to a degree, even like some Latin music strewn yeah. throughout it uh, with some of the polyrhythms and whatnot they use. They're, they're a very interesting and very musical band. And I think they defy uh, anybody putting them into a specific category. They're just one of those bands that is, I, I think, beloved by all kinds of diverse music listeners yeah i'd agree with that I, I the sound it's i think their diversity in sound is what really makes them uh stand out and stand apart from everyone else so definitely agree with you there what's your standout track from 1996 jack oh man there's so many uh of course i, I might as well just start out with uh, ironic from alanis morissette well, now we talked about this last time uh the album came out in 1995 but uh, it was uh, it impacted pretty well in 1996. I think that's my favorite song by her. Of course, it kind of has like a, I don't know, the wife and I kind of have a joke about that song. So it's kind of a it's kind of a fun song between the two of us. Aside from that, though, um, you know, I love the Gin Blossoms. I remember they came to uh, my college, uh, I um, my freshman year, um, and I had no idea who they were. I actually didn't go to that show. I'm kicking myself. I wish I had now. Um, but Follow You Down was a big song in 1996. Uh, Oasis also had, of course, their classic Champagne Supernova. And another song that I am just listening to for the first time. This is killing me because like, I love Oasis, but I, I have never gone back and listened to all of their music before. Oh, there's so much stuff. In there, I don't man. know why like, I haven't done that. I like, I am totally capable of doing it, but I love champagne supernova so much. I never heard don't look back in anger. And I love that song. I added it to my list right away. So if I like those two songs, I should probably like everything else by them too. Yeah. I mean, don't look back in anger is very, to me, like, man, there was, it was more Elton John than Elton John had ever been. You know what I mean? Wow. It was just like, and, and anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge Elton John fan. I, I think he's one of the, the best performers of an entire generation. 
And when Oasis was able to take that Beatlesque influence, which they deny to this day, but whatever, dude, it's, it's the Beatles and you're from the same country. There's no way you're unaware. It's like the Greta Von Fleet Led Zeppelin argument. Don't tell me you didn't know who they were. That's um, straight. Well, I got to stop you for a second. I had no idea that people had made that comparison to Oasis, but I thought that from the very beginning when I first heard them, that this sounds very Beatlesque. So it's funny you yeah. said. So to take that Beatlesque thing, that that melody, the ability to to have these underlying hooks and apply it to something that really, in my opinion, only Elton had really had uh, a lot of success with in the pop world was a piano ballad. Um, it, it was cool for me. And then the, the next Oasis thing that blew my mind, I don't remember if it was 96 or 97, but they had a song called Acquiesce uh, that is just, to me, their finest piece of work ever. It's just this soaring anthem that is everything that really encompasses what I love about that band. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely love it. And uh, I, I, this is my challenge to myself to go back and finally, once and for all, listen to more stuff from Oasis. It's long overdue for me. Absolutely, man. Now, another album that we have to talk about from 1996, because I think it was one of the most important albums of the year, uh, a little song called Odelay from Beck. Uh, this thing won Grammys. It sold millions of copies. It spawned three huge singles with Where It's At, Devil's Haircut, and my personal favorite of the three, The New Pollution. Now, this was kind of a comeback record for Beck because he had released a little something called One Foot in the Grave after Mellow Gold, and a lot of people had written Beck off as a one-hit wonder. Then he drops this masterpiece, and man, it really changed everybody's perspective on Beck. And I mean, these singles specifically, and a, and a lot of this was him deciding to work with the Dust Brothers, which is cool. Dust Brothers who were very hip hop focused at the time. Like they were best known for like the Beastie Boys and Tone Loke and Young MC. So to have Beck team up um, after, you know, his, his sort of folk hop record with Mellow Gold, uh, to add these hip-hop elements to his very forward-thinking, progressive, alternative music created this really bombastic and pseudo-psychedelic thing that really caught on, man. There's, there's nothing about this album that isn't just absolute genius. I mean, and, and, it, and it's funny to me, too, because, like, Beck is that dude that was, like, counterculture before counterculture became more accepted in the mainstream. So like the fact that he released a single called Sissy Neck, you know, as the fourth single off of this just shows that like this dude was willing to push buttons and bring things up for discussion in a time period long before I think society was ready for it. Well, I want to have a discussion about Beck. I actually, so I, I, I need, I need to figure out. Okay. I know who Beck is. Mm -hmm. I know his music, you know, I like the, the hits and I've known who he is for a very long time, but to this day, I don't know who Beck is. And I actually, I, in my notes here and preparing for the show today, I wrote down Beck in big caps with three question marks and scratches and scratches of underlines. I don't, I don't, I don't get him. I, I, I don't, I don't. And that's not to say that it's anything. You're not bad. supposed to. <laughs> Maybe you can explain it to yeah, me. That's his whole thing, though. For me, Beck has always just kind of been that dude that was like, hey, guess what? Yup, I had a huge single with Loser, and guess what? I'm never going to do anything like that again. That's exactly Yo, here's, it. Here's Odelay. You like how this record sounds? I'm never going to do anything that sounds like it again. Like, dude, go listen to Sea Change. Like, he wrote an entire album that is just the most beautiful, sad thing you've ever heard in your entire life. And then he's got like other records where he's got like, and I don't remember all the albums by name because there's just so many of them, but he's almost got like this, this, this ability to reinvent himself every single time he goes into the studio and with no regard for anything other than writing the best music in the headspace that he's currently in. And I don't know if he's like this 
avant-garde genius that everybody says he is. I just think he's a dude that likes to experiment, is highly talented, and at this point has the ability to rub up against and collaborate with absolutely anybody he wants. He can write his own ticket based off how big Loser was, and he has 100% done that, been successful well beyond, I think, anybody's expectations, including his own. And despite the fact that he hasn't had a true hit in almost five years, and even that was kind of a minor hit with Colors, the, self, the, the title track off the most recent album, um, he's still a dude that can sell out arenas. He's still a dude that sells ungodly numbers of records and, and downloads. Um, and I think there are many different types of Beck fans. You certainly got the people that love everything he does, but that is a very small, small, minuscule group of people. And then you've got the people that love 90s Beck with Mellow Gold and Odelay. And then you get into people that really dig the early 2000s stuff where he started to really push the boundaries between like Radiohead and rave music. And then there was the sad album. It was sort of like sea shanties. And then there was like this weird 60s, almost like mod record he did. And then like you get into like the modern stuff where he's going back to almost like a dance type thing. Like the dude's an enigma. I respect everything he's done. I don't love everything he's done, but I think he has some very, very clear and genius moments. And I put him in a category with, with a very few other bands, one of which is Radiohead, which is, Hey, yup. We took the major labels money. We made them a bunch of money with our first single, whether it's loser or creep on either side of that equation. And from here on out, we're going to do what we want because we've earned that. And they didn't compromise in any way, shape, or form along the way. And, you know, it, it's that thing where, like, is, is the Radiohead audience as big today as it was when OK Computer Amnesiac dropped? Probably not. But I think that was them thinning the herd. You know what I mean? I think there, there's so many of these artistic people that want success, but they want the success to have the freedom. And then when they get the freedom and then success comes from their free thinking, they think they need to change it again. And part of that, I think, might lie into the mindset of what Beck has accomplished over the arc of his career. So I, I was just looking this up. So he's received, since 1996, he's received 22 Grammy nominations. He's won seven Grammys. And I remember, I think it was back in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when he won album of the year uh, with morning phase and yes. one of the I, records I don't like, by the way. Okay. I, that I think that was the year. Let me just be sure. Well, actually it may have been, it was either 2014 or 2018. No, it, it was, it was definitely 2014 when he won album of the year. And there was a lot of controversy because there were other artists he were, uh, he was up against that were more, I guess, current Um you know, if you could say more mainstream uh, to the current day in 2014. And people were like, who is Beck? Who is this guy? Why does he deserve Grammy Awards? And I was never one of those people that said that. But at the same time, I didn't know really much of his music. And I didn't like that album was completely uh, unknown to me. And I had no idea that he was still making music. And yet he won album of the year in 2014. And so I guess ever since then, it's been like, I've never really understood Beck and I never really, like, I, I never I never got what he had going on for him. And again, that's nothing bad against him. I just, I, I don't know it yet because I haven't really listened to his music and that's something that I guess I got to do. <laughs> I would say definitely dive in and definitely go chronological, but start with Mellow Gold. Okay. Like, don't bother with stereopathic soul manure. Like, it's just or golden feelings. Cause neither of them are truly like albums. They're just like thrown together songs. They're almost like demo mixtapes. Uh, and I, I would almost say the same thing about one foot in the grave because it was, it, I mean, essentially it was K records taking advantage of the fact that they had a bunch of unreleased back songs and they put it out as a new album. So if you want to go chronological, it's mellow gold, Odelay, mutations, Midnight Vultures, which is one of his best by far. Uh, sea Change, which is my favorite album of his to date. 
Uh, Garo is the one after that. Uh, the information is one that I, ugh, not my favorite record. Uh, Modern Guilt again. And, and this is the, the area in which he started really pushing the boundaries. And when you look at the album sales, you can tell that these were not, uh, his most beloved albums. And as a matter of fact, like Morning Phase, the album that he won the Grammy with in 2014 to this day still hasn't sold 300,000 copies. That, all right. So do you think, how did he win album of the year? What What is Artistic that? Artistic merit. Artistic merit. 100%. So what did they look for in those in, in giving those awards. I wish I knew, man. I wish I knew, but like I'm never going to begrudge back in award for being an artist because I think he fully exemplifies that. Yeah. And by the way, I, I just want to say this again. I don't want, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. I don't want you to get the wrong idea that like, I've got anything against him. I don't, I, I just, I, I haven't grown up with his music. I haven't listened to a lot of his music other than the, a couple of those, those hit songs. So I don't understand. And just that, do you remember that controversy? uh back in 2014 with that whole thing there's there's controversy around the grammys every year well true yeah you know what i mean like it, it, you know having a favorite artist is like having a favorite sports team it right. doesn't give <laughs> you any sort of objectivity well i will say this so i mean we've seen so far in this podcast too since starting in 1980 that alternative music as a genre is a lot of different sounds and styles and it's it's ever evolving it's always changing and i think beck definitely fits that criteria because everything you're just saying about how i mean i i don't know who the hell he is you know because he's always changing and i think that is one thing that makes him a a classic case of an alternative artist so um you know i it's definitely one of those artists that will go down in history as one of the most influential alternative artists i'm sure Absolutely. And to your point of alternative music evolving and being all of these different things, 1996 is a great example of that. Uh, specifically, Sublime's third album, which was self-titled, uh, which spawned a, a bunch of singles that we still uh, listen to to this day on every format, whether it's uh, What I Got, which is probably the biggest, but you're also talking Santeria, um, you know, not my cup of tea, really. You know what I mean? The the, the weird sort of acoustic reggae punk. Uh, but there's no denying the fact that Sublime was a major force in the world of alternative music. Um, and, you know, to this day, they still tour with Rome as, as their new singer. Because Bradley, unfortunately, another member of the 27 Club, passing away at the age of 27 from a heroin overdose. Uh, but he did leave behind two phenomenal albums with this and its predecessor, uh, 40 Ounces to Freedom, which is a Sublime album I do get behind. Hmm. Yeah, I, I always like Sublime. Uh, <laughs> I don't like everything, but I like I like the reggae like funk to their sound. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's no offense. It's meant for like suburban white kids and you are very <laughs> clearly that, Jack. No offense. <laughs> None taken. Uh, and, to, and to speak more to that point about the alternative universe becoming such a multifaceted thing, this was the year that we were really sort of introduced to the power and reach of the Dave Matthews band uh, with the release of their album Crash. Oh, that was in 1996. <laughs> they had, they did have Under the Table and Dreaming, which spawned the single, um, I forget what it was. Uh, it actually said the words under the table and dreaming in it. As you can tell, I'm not a huge DMB fan. Um, <laughs> but this album did have a legit five charting singles with too much, so much to say, two-step, tripping billies. And, and the one that I think is probably the most iconic, even though Dave himself has come out and said that he really detests playing the song now, is Crash Into Me. Oh, I mean, he's probably played that song so many times. I mean, I'd be sick of it too. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I do have to say though, that like, I, this is another thing. Everyone's going to think I'm dissing everyone in this episode, but like, I, I don't get Dave Matthews band. Like I like them. I, I like, I like, you know, I'm not like a fan fan, but like for the, there's those Dave Matthews bands who are like 
they go to every single show and they go to like multiple shows. And when I say multiple, they'll go to like more than 10 and they'll follow them around on a summer road trip tour Bro, and go to every single show. I don't get that. <laughs> you're preaching to the choir. One of my best friends, uh, my, my former uh, collaborator in 2CW, my buddy Josh, uh, has been to over 300, 300 Dave Matthews shows in, I think it's 17 countries and on three continents. I mean, I, I will say that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, to travel, if travel around the world, seeing your favorite band, but wow, that's a lot. I, look, man, I love music as much as the next guy, right? And I have my favorite bands and I can't think of anybody <laughs> that I would plan a vacation around following a tour, tour through Europe. You know what I mean? Like it, it just, concerts of that magnitude are essentially a day's work. You've got to, you've got to, you got to plan sure. it. You've got to dress properly. You've got to get there early. You've got to park. You've got to walk. You've got to find your seats. You've got to find refreshments. You got to find like, it, it's a struggle, man. I don't like going to shows on that largest scale. So to do that for like 13 days over the course of two weeks in foreign countries, like that's not fun to me. That doesn't sound like fun. Actually, you know, it's funny that, that hearing you describe it like that actually does kind of sound like fun now that I think about it. <laughs> it's because you haven't done it in a year. I mean, yeah, that's true. I will go to any concert. I don't care who's playing. And again, I got nothing against Dave Matthews band. I just, uh, I don't know if I'd be doing the 300 show thing over the course of I've one I've seen summer. him live four times. Man. I don't know Never if I could afford that. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Considering how uh, expensive concerts are now. <laughs> absolutely. Do you want to dive into a uh, little alternative 101? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a band that I, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this week. Weezer. We are diving into Weezer in alternative 101 and their album Pinkerton. Dixon schools Jack on an album he's never heard before. It's Alternative 101 on the Roots of Alternative podcast. Dude, I know. Weezer's a huge band, and I should be giving you stuff like Poe or The Eels, but this was, in my opinion, one of the strangest things that's ever happened in the world of music because, A... I dig the Blue Album, man. Their debut album was a masterpiece. Perfect from beginning to end. Hooky as hell. I've listened to it thousands of times. This came out and my jaw was on the ground. Like El Scorcho got released before the album. And wait, wait, is that a good thing or a bad thing? No, I, 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 I still say to this day that this is their finest piece of work. And it is their most misunderstood. Because I think everybody was expecting a sequel to the Blue Album. And what a lot of people don't understand is like the whole, the whole premise of following up the Blue Album was supposed to be a rock opera in the vein of more of like a Rocky Horror Meatloaf style thing called Songs from the Black Hole. And Rivers had talked about it publicly. And the response to the idea of Weezer doing essentially a rock opera at this point in their career was definitely shot down, I think, by quite a few people. Uh, he was also at Harvard, like getting his master's degree at Harvard and being told no about an artistic endeavor when you just had the success you had with the Blue Album, put him in this headspace to write this record. And it was dark. Well, it was darker. It was darker than the Blue Album. It was most certainly more abrasive from a tonal standpoint. It was um, where the Blue Album was a, let's put this on, throw our surfboards on the roof of the car, let's go surfing. This one is a little bit more about Rivers' specific disillusionment in being a rock star or a public figure. Um, he actually named the album Pinkerton, uh, after the character B.F. Pinkerton from Giacomo Puccini's 1904 opera, Madama Butterfly. And in Rivers' opinion, he described it as an asshole American sailor similar to a touring rock star. So he took what he thought was going to be his opus with this rock opera, his sort of depression and anxiety and all of the things he was working on, and poured it into this album. And 
despite the fact that it went certified platinum, like the reviews were scathing, like to a point where like Matt Sharp left the band, the bass player, Matt Sharp left the band. The, the, the critical reception of this album was just brutal. And it was just because they didn't deliver what the critics and audience wanted, which was the blue album part two, which ended up being the green album, which was a big hiatus between this one and when that dropped. But um, some of their best work, in my opinion, is 100% on this album from uh, the obvious single of El Scorcho, uh, Tired of Sex is a classic. Get You to Me is their most underappreciated song in the history of their catalog. Uh, the Good Life is a fan favorite that's still played um, to, to this day. Like they played it at the Amp when they played here a couple summers ago. And then they did come out with a deluxe edition later on that has some gems on it too, including You Gave Your Love to Me Softly, which is go listen to that. I won't ruin it for you. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a couple of like live things on there as well. Um, there's also the, the cool thing too. That, that I'll point out if, if anybody wants to go back and check it out is back in 2011 rivers himself put out a compilation album called alone three, the Pinkerton years. And it's comprised of like early demos of a lot of the songs from Pinkerton, but also from the rock opera. So when he was studying at Harvard, he was writing the material for Pinkerton. He had abandoned songs from the black hole. Uh, so there's a lot of demos from both. And he actually included it with a little book, called the Pinkerton Diaries. And it's a lot of like River's own personal like journal entries from that time period, mm-hmm. like in his own handwriting. And it definitely gives you an insight into not only why this album turned out as dark as it was. Um, and you know that I don't swear a lot on this uh, <laughs> and I'll do my best not to now, but ultimately in hindsight, and especially given the way Rivers has talked about it, this was his big middle finger to the record label. And the fact that the art was so good and the message of giving that middle finger to the industry was so well hidden at the time. Like the, the, the lack of critical fanfare spun him off to a point where he decided he wasn't going to play music anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm all for it, man. Listen, and and I I said this earlier when we were discussing Blue October, and I believe this to this very day. You cannot criticize an artist for evolving or adapting as time changes. The artistic Mm -hmm. viewpoint is going to change as people's lives change, as they mature, as they experience new things. And like I said with Blue October, if you love the Blue Album, you still own the Blue Album. Listen to it. When Weezer releases another record after Pinkerton, maybe you'll like that one. And if you don't, guess what? You still got the Blue Album. You know, and this was pre-internet. So this wasn't like people talking crap on a message board. This was like NME in, in major like music reporting places, like magazines, newspapers, um, lamenting like how bad this record is. And I remember at the time thinking like, cause I've never been a big fan of critics in general. Like mm-hmm. I just think the idea of, you know, like, uh, look, man, I'll take like, if rivers wants to give his opinion on the new 1975, um, I would love to hear what his perspective on that record is. And regardless of what he thinks, I still have my opinion, but I respect his opinion because he's a musician who's been in that position. The critic writing for the LA Times is a failed musician who decided to, and I don't know this for a fact, I'm just, right. you know, generalizations, yeah. but like most critics are, are, are guys that couldn't cut it, you know? So it's just like their job is to tear things down. And they tore down this poor guy's psyche so bad that he stopped making music. Hmm. And here's the thing. Had they dropped a big steaming pile of shit as an album, I would be behind that. But the critics took this to such an extent with what everybody who is a Weezer fan considers to be their finest work that like it's still a head scratcher all these years later. Yeah. Well, um, first I would say 
because so part of part of if you're kind of new to this new feature that we're doing alternative 101 uh dixon gives me an album to listen to that i've never heard before i've never heard pinkerton before gotta say honest opinion was not my favorite but at the same time i think i'm realizing too that <laughs> this is the theme of this episode i i i'm not that big a weezer fan um it's not and, for everybody well, if you didn't grow up on the Beach Boys, chances are Weezer's not going to be your jam. Exactly. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I I like I I don't I, I'm not the kind of person that is totally against something like I've got to find I've got to find some common ground. I appreciate Weezer and I like a lot of their songs off the Blue album. I love that they're, you know, like the Southern California vibe, um which I'm totally into. I lived in Southern California for a little while, so I get it. Um but I I just, you know, I don't click with Weezer like I do some other bands, you know? Um, and that's just, you know, everybody's own taste in music. This album, there were a couple of songs that I really did enjoy. I loved Butterfly. Um, that was actually my favorite on the album. And it's the last song on the album. Um, I love that that was just like an easygoing acoustic song. Um, so I love that. And El Scorcho was my other favorite. That one definitely had those SoCal surf and beach vibes. Uh, which again, I'm totally into, but the rest of the album was kind of confusing to me. I mean, I guess, yes, uh, after listening to the blue album, this was very different, but I don't criticize them for changing their sound and trying to do something different. Because again, the theme that we've been talking about all along is how bands need to stay relevant. Otherwise they, they fall to the wayside and they become nothing and they're just one hit wonders. So how Weezer was able to take this and Rivers Cuomo uh, in particular was able to take this and and turn it into something new, I think is really commendable. And when I was looking it up, I heard you talking about uh, the rock opera. I guess it was supposed to be a science fiction rock opera that he was going to call Songs from the Black Hole, which I really wish that, I, did he ever do that or release anything? Because I'm super intrigued by that. I would love to listen to that. If you go back and listen to uh, that um Pinkerton volumes. You'll hear little snippets of stuff that he's used later on, but none, none of the songs really got used. Uh, the other thing I want to point out about this is there are a multitude of bands that have come forward to say that this album in particular inspired their early work. And that really? includes Jimmy Eat World. Really? Saves the Day. Huh. Dashboard Confessional. The Get Up wow. Kids. In Motion City Soundtrack. So to me, the fact that like this, this was almost, in my opinion, the first emo record. Wow. Um, I, I don't know what to say to that. That, I mean, that's cool. That's pretty cool. I, I don't, I don't see the similarities. So I, I would really be interested to hear like, you know, I, I'd love to hear dashboard, you know, explanations as to, why this was a, a, an influence on on their music? I don't really see the similarities, but maybe I'm. Well, missing the thing something. I'll say is this: is you have to listen to Dashboard as a whole band and more of their earlier stuff uh, that came out right after Swiss Army Romance. Uh, with Jimmy Eat World, you have to predate Bleed American and go back to Clarity and that first release to really get that influence from this record. Uh, but even if when you listen to stuff like the middle, you can tell that that's inspired by Weezer just by the repetitive nature of the guitar lick. I mean, that was 100% something that, um, why can't I come up with the dude's name? Jim Adkins came right out and said, mm -hmm. like, this is a straight aping of Rivers Cuomo when that song hmm. dropped. Okay. I, I think I, I, I guess I could see that. I could see elements of that. That's intriguing though. That really is. Um, never would have thought it, it, that in at all and strangely 25 years later here we are on the verge of weezer releasing a new album called okay human uh which has a new single on 95x that is mm. pretty amazing and i actually this, like it i like it this is much more in the vein of pinkerton in stepping away from that van halen-esque weezer thing they've been doing for the last decade or so in fact it actually pushed back the album van weezer by a few months so that this one could have a little bit of breathing room oh wow. i'm excited to see uh what this spawns uh for weezer and i i think it could be an absolute 
reimagining. I mean, all my favorite songs is Killer. It's departure from what they've been doing for the last 10 to 15 years. And it's a breath of fresh air, much like Pinkerton is when you go back and listen to it compared to the, hmm. the more modern Weezer sound. Hmm. Well, overall, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely acknowledge Weezer's uh, contribution to alternative music. And again, nothing against them. Uh, this wasn't my favorite, but I did enjoy those two songs on it. And I thought it was interesting to learn too that Rivers Cuomo was born with he had one leg longer than the other. And he had a surgery to correct that, I guess, um, between the Blue Album and Pinkerton. And what you were talking about earlier is part of, um, uh, while he was in the process of making that rock opera, uh, his mood started changing during his recovery uh, and a lot of the anger and, you know, just pain that he was going through at the time went into a lot of the songs on Pinkerton, which I thought was really interesting to learn about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, thank you for opening my eyes to this one, Dixon, as always. You got one for next week? I do. And, and while this is an album that I know by heart, and I think you're going to know the name of the band and probably one song. I would like you to listen to Let's Face It by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Ooh, okay. I, I've never listened to that album. I know the one song, but I'm intrigued. Because here's the thing. The summer of 97 was the summer of ska. Yes, it was. And this, to me, was the direction that 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 genre should have gone in and didn't and this stands alone as in my in my opinion there is one and only one ska masterpiece and it's this listenable like you know how ska gets like super annoying because it's so upbeat and it's just kind of like pick it up pick it up the whole time mm -hmm. like there's elements of that in this but they also show their musicianship and their ability to understand songwriting in a way that their contemporaries like the aquabats or uh, even Real Big Fish didn't have. Well, we were talking earlier about uh, the N64, how it came out in 1996. As we mentioned, I've got my N64 over my shoulder here in my office. Right next to it is a PS1. So I'm just going to have to pull out some Tony Hawk Pro Skater and listen to the Mighty, Hawk, Mighty, Mighty Boss Tones while I'm listening to that album. <laughs> there you go. What were some of your favorites in 1996, Jack? Well, uh, there were several more. Uh, Got to go with the Foo Fighters, Big Me. Uh, classic song. Love that song. Uh, love the Foo Fighters in general. Um, Santa Monica by Everclear. Another huge song. I uh, got to see them play at Chevy Court, great New York State Fair a couple years ago. So that was good. Um, and then there was another song in 1997 or 1996 that I, I knew this song was, was a hit on the radio. And quite honestly, I, I never... I don't know where I heard this song for the first time uh, years and years ago. Um, but nonetheless, it's a great song. And though I'm not too into the genre that this song exists in primarily, uh, I still think it's a good song. And that is Flood by Jars of Clay, um, who I know is a Christian band. Um, yep. But... Uh, I don't know. I don't know much about them, but I think it's a great song. They're my wife's second favorite band of all time behind Blue October. Really? Yeah. Hmm. My wife grew up uh, teaching Sunday school, very much a part of her family's church and, and whatnot. And uh, for those that know me, you know, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> so it's strange. We're opposites in a lot of way, but yeah. Um, opposites attract yeah. my man. Yeah, I mean, I was very aware of Jars of Clay because they did have the hit with Flood on the air, and I thought the song was cool. I thought, uh, and here's my thing, man. There's been a lot of Christian bands or religious bands over the years that I haven't minded uh, because they keep the, the, the nature of their faith well hidden in verse. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you would never know that Skillet is a Christian band unless well, you knew them from when they were a Christian band. True. Where, and, and, you know, to be fair too, there's a lot of other bands who, you know, they're just other bands that, that are not non-Christian bands that write songs about pretty, you know, explicit things, but you would never know it because of how it's written and how they yeah. arrange the song. 
And Jars of Clay most certainly had a hit with Flood. Uh, I think another album we got to bring up uh, is Bringing Down the Horse by the Wallflowers. Uh, oh, the yeah. son of Bob Dylan, Jacob Dylan's band. A uh, multitude of hits on this one, including Sixth Avenue Heartache, Three Marlenas, One Headlights. Um, and it, it's actually funny that these guys uh, were kind of synonymous with Counting Crows for a while. And uh, the background vocals that you hear on Sixth Avenue Heartache are, in fact, Adam Duritz of Counting Crows. Is that true? Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I, I've always kind of put those two bands in the same group and category as well. Uh, one Headlight is one of my absolute favorite songs. You ask my wife what songs are my favorite. She would definitely say that's one of them. <laughs> Absolutely. And this, again, was all over the place. It was on an episode of Friends, the one with the fake party. Uh, they used it as the, the title screen for Cold Case Season 2. Uh, they played it on The Late Show with David Letterman, Saturday Night Live. Uh, and it's played after every Atlanta Braves home loss. One headlight? No, Sixth Avenue heartache. Oh, so, oh, Sixth Avenue heartache. Okay, it's like, why would they play one headlight at the end of a loss? It's not exactly a depressing song. No, 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 no. But Sixth <laughs> Avenue heartache. Yeah, I get it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that, that's the song that I should be playing after uh, my Buffalo Bills lost to the AFC Championship the other night. We're just not going to talk about it. I feel you, dog. Uh, 96 spawned so many great singles that I would love to talk about, but we just don't have the time. So I'm just going to give you a quick list of stuff that I think you should check out if you are not familiar with it. Lightning uh, round. Let's go. All right. So for me, uh, there's a bunch of them and as much as I broke down and talked about how they sort of made me hate my teen years. The Red Hat Chili Peppers had a really dope cover of Love Roller Coaster in 1996. It's one of my favorite things they've ever done. Uh, Afghan Wigs, we've talked about in the past, had a single with Honky's Ladder, which was really cool. Uh, the Cardigans had Love Fool, a song still to this day used in a lot of mediums. Uh, the Fun Loving Criminals with Scooby Snacks, the Nixons and Sister. Uh, if you were into the more electronic side of things, there was a cool band called Gravity Kills that had a song called Guilty. Uh, Local H debuted with Bound for the Floor. Uh, the Foo Fighters had uh, another one that was uh, not on that self-titled along with Big Me. It was their cover of Gary Newman's Down in the Park, mm. which was amazing. Uh, Garbage had a lot of success with Stupid Girl. There was Republica with Ready to Go. Uh, no Doubt was riding their wave out of 1995 into 1996 as Spiderwebs began to grow. Um, Social Distortion had a great album called White Heat, White Light, White Trash with a single called I Was Wrong. Uh, in addition to that, you also saw the release of 33 by the Smashing Pumpkins off of their double disc album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Uh, the beginning of Ska Punk with Goldfinger and Here in Your Bedroom. Uh, the rap sensations that died off as quick as they came in. The Bloodhound Gang broke through with Fire, Water, Burn. And there were hits from a lot of artists we've talked about in the past, whether it was the Lemonheads, uh, Tori Amos, Stone Temple Pilots, R.E.M., the Foo Fighters. It was a hell of a year. Yeah, you're darn right it was. It was a good one. So, man, I can't believe, uh, I can't believe we got through it already. 1996. So what do we got coming up in 1997? 1997 gives us one of your wife's favorite bands of all time with Third Eye Blind. We're yes, going to have to talk about Sugar Ray. <laughs> Wait, they're, alter they're considered to. alternative? Absolutely, they were. Yeah, this was, this was the modern really? rock era of alternative music, so you're going to see some of that stuff sneak in. But huh. uh, the Brits contributed with both Blur and The Verve showing up uh, in 1997, an all-female band called Veruca Salt. Uh, we get our first taste of Blink-182, and the Foo Fighters drop their second album, one of my favorites of all time, and that's weird for me to say anything positive about the Foo Fighters these days, but The Color and the Shape is truly a legendary album. And of course, you've got your homework assignment. We're going to pick it up, pick it up with, let's face it, from the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Can't wait to do it. I'm definitely going to throw in that Tony Hawk Pro Skater on my PS1 while I listen to that album. I'll report back. I'll send you cheat codes. <laughs> All right, man. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, remember, you can uh, check out our show page, 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative for some bonus content, uh, including uh, that uh, video from the 1996 uh, Democratic National Convention of the Macarena being uh, performed and everyone dancing to it. It's, it's a good one. 
enjoy. <laughs> and I think there's one more in there. Check it out. 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative. And of course, you can listen on all of our uh, past episodes, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Give us a subscribe and uh, send us a voicemail too if you'd like to uh, reach out and give us some feedback. So Dixon, thanks again, my friend. We'll talk to you next time. I can't wait, dude. And thank you for joining us once again. This has been the Roots of Alternative podcast for 95X. Ha <laughs> ha!